This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. It's a podcast about making work better. Hello, hello. I've enjoyed a return to normalcy a degree this week. I uh, I went out, went to eat in Marito, and Marito is my favourite restaurant. Really, it's sort of a little tiny Moorish Spanish tapas place down in Exmouth Market. There's another one actually near Shoreditch High Street. Anyway, I adore that place. Went out there, bit of tomato bread, bit of uh, deep fried aubergine. <laughs> it was delightful. For, lots of white wine. Delightful. Um, that was good. It was nice to be out in public. I have done a couple of the drinking beers outside of pubs, which is a big deal for me because I don't normally drink beer. But uh, drinking beer outside of pubs felt like freedom as well. So a degree of normalcy. Goodness knows what the consequences are. Before we kick off today, I just want to give you a reminder the, the newsletter grew about another 25% last week. It's growing fantastically. And really, it's just the best place if you are interested in being an authority in your workplace on how we can fix work. I try and aggregate all of the best information I've found each week there. So a good one to look out for. You can get that by going to the website, eatsleepworkrepeat.com, and you'll find the navigation at the top. So um, I've got a sort of good episode today that's one that I recorded a while ago, pre-lockdown and because it was such a long interview and a long edit I've just been hesitating to put it out and I've hesitated far too long to put it out but as we were discussing the implications of how the world of work is going to change over the the next six months 12 months forever I was really struck with some of the the things that came up in this discussion so what happened was I found myself on a panel um, with a really sort of charming, brilliant, intelligent guy called Misha Byrne about 12 months ago. And he works for a company called Neuropower. And um, I was really struck. They they sort of specialise in trying to use applied neuroscience and, and applied psychology, I guess, to help companies, specifically in very tangible areas. So Anyway, I was really struck with what he said. Uh, I contacted him, and uh, he's based in Germany. I contacted him, and then when he swung by the UK shortly afterwards, uh, he brought along Peter Burrow, who's the founder of the company, and we just had what you're about to hear, which is sort of a fantastic discussion that I think is relevant to some of the themes that 
we're going to be thinking about right now as we try and recreate a positive workplace culture, maybe with the office or with less of the office. So similar themes to what we've covered in the last two podcasts, really. And get me three in three weeks. Uh, there's, there's some wonderful stuff in this discussion. I think the importance of relatedness, a concept that, that Misha and Peter discuss here, really important. Um, really, this sort of the essence of psychological safety. One thing they say is captivating for me that psychologically safe teams argue more, not less. And I think a few of us have heard this phrase, psychological safety, but knowing what it activates in the brain gave me a whole new aspect to it. They talk about the importance of, of trying to find ways to build affinity between people who might not initially see connection with each other. Misha previously did some work um, trying to build connection between doctors between Pakistan and India. Now, obviously, those countries are sort of in a, a long-term historical enmity with each other. Uh, a really interesting case study of how you build connection with people who might otherwise feel that their identity, their affinity is being pulled in another direction. How we build resilience in the teams is one of the things we talk about. There's a wonderful phrase, that I've called it out on the top of the podcast notes. We think people want to be liked, but in fact they need to be needed. It's a really critical thing. It, it brought to mind when I think... Um, I think Peter said it. It brought to mind something that I remember reading about uh, an interpretation of what had happened with German officers in the Second World War and why German officers, even while they were often treated incredibly badly um, themselves, had stood by and and really done things that sort of people struggled to interpret afterwards. And quite often it was because there was a real sense of need and, and duty and expectation that their role was really important. And it had echoes of that when they talked about it today. They took through an interesting model. You'll see the model in the show notes. One book that we mention the most is a book called Social by a guy called Matt Lieberman. And in fact, Misha does a really good job of discussing one of the interesting things, uh, this game that Matt Lieberman pioneered. I adored that book. I read that book, The, the Last Holiday of Freedom that I had, and I sort of devoured it in a few hours. The book's called Social by Matt Lieberman. Matt Lieberman is very much the sort of the pioneer of a whole branch of social psychology. I think, as Misha says, he started off as a philosophy student who started playing around with an FRMI scanner and ended up doing a series of experiments that taught us a whole lot. One of the things I, I was really taken with, he said, Matt Lieberman talks about how psychological pain we feel is almost as as visceral and as real as real pain that we experience, which has got really sort of interesting consequences to it. Anyway, brilliant book, but we talk a lot about that. I tried to get Matt Lieberman on the podcast, but he's inevitably very busy. At the end, Misha invites listeners to drop him an email, and I've put a, a place in the show notes that you can do that. I've also linked to Peter's book, which you can read for free or pay for, whichever you prefer. Here's my discussion on how we can build resilience by understanding neuroscience. Here's Misha Byrne and Peter Burrow from NeuroPower. To kick off our discussion, I asked Peter, in what situations firms would use a neuroscience consultancy? An organisation may have had to downsize by 20% or 30%, or they need to do a radical agile shift or pivot in the market or stresses are getting higher, how do you get the, the culture engaged and positive when they've been through trauma or when things are getting much tougher? 
That's when we get engaged. Right. Let's go into that. Do you start with individuals? Do you start with diagnosing a team problem? Are all team problems different or the same? So the first thing to look at is that all change happens in teams. All resilience or rejuvenation or anti-fragility is team-based. We're herd animals. Culture as an overall company culture can exist, but mainly as an aspirational culture. You and I may come from different families, so we're actually going to have different priorities. We probably eat different food. We may like different alcohol or not drink alcohol at all. This is all what's been embedded within us. But what we can share, these are differences in the same way that often our political persuasion is driven by our families. So this is our, it's almost like our current state. They're the differences. But what we share is an aspirational state, which is an aspirational culture. So that's what you're wanting people to draw towards. Good. A good example of that is if you think of somebody from a different country, somebody from the UK. Now, there's how others see and how UK, a UK citizen may actually be, but then there's the aspired state of somebody from the UK. If you want to charm somebody, don't talk to them about how they actually are. Talk to them about their aspired state. If you want to draw groups together, you need to focus on the aspirational state of the culture. This is what we all share. It's almost like sometimes the identity of a group of individuals, whether at the national level or not, is sometimes slightly distant from the reality of what they are. That is exactly are. right. And that and that's a company gap, is the same as that? Yeah, exactly. And and that gap is what creates the energy. So if there's no gap, everything within the brain is based on polarity. So if there's no polarity, if there's no gap between current and desired state, there's no energy. And so slowly organizations grind to a halt. You know, they just get slower and slower, and that's where you get bureaucracy. There needs to be a gap. That gap isn't a bad thing. It's what drives the human condition. It's what makes us uniquely human. So that dissonance isn't necessarily a design flaw. It's sort of by... De- it's Absolutely by design. OK. And so, so that would mean that at times you're trying to ensure that the idealised version of that culture is sustained, even if the day-to-day experience of it might not always live up to that. Is That's that right. right. And and you'll have different teams within the organisation that have very different current culture, but they can all share the aspired culture. Right. So at a very simple level, the finance department's going to be different from the marketing right. department. We don't want them to be the same. They've got different ones, a control function, one's a growth function. You don't want them to be the same. You want them to be different, but they can share an aspired state. The first place to start with all of this is to ask yourself the question, how effectively do we form teams and support our teams and provide incentives to our teams? So our our first myth is that performance happens at an individual level. Individuals perform, but they have good days and bad days and they have up times and down times. Teams are far more consistent. So it's no different from if you or I were to go out into the jungle, we may survive a while, but we won't thrive. Put a, put a team of us out in the jungle and we'll actually thrive. So the first thought from a neuroscience perspective and, and from a, a joy perspective is the health of the team defines the health of the individual. And you mentioned anti-fragility there, which is, is that synonymous with resilience? How would you build a team for that? So the, the Explain the concept first. Well... Nassim Taleb came up with this new term, and he's a behavioural economist, uh, and it's a terrific term. And it basically means you've got fragile, which means you need to treat it with care. You've got robust, which means that 
you can be shaken around a bit, but you'll survive. But then you've got anti-fragility, which means the more turmoil you have, the more stress you have, the stronger you get. And his central argument is that uh, our gene lines have been uh, here today because in the past, our ancestors have been anti-fragile. There's been great trauma, great catastrophe, but our gene lines have managed to thrive on that chaos and we've managed to come through the other side. So the objective for an organisation isn't just to be robust. Family businesses are often robust in that they have deep pockets and short hands and so their, their money tends to be deep enough that they can fund through the bad times. But that's a very different concept than saying, when things are really in high degrees of turmoil, our company thrives. We grow in that environment. And that's what teams do that individuals can't. And they do that because of the diversity and the psychological safety and the ability to be able to support each other. And we are willing to put all of ourselves on the line for an ideal that the team holds to achieve a team goal. And the team will support us through through the good and the bad. So there's an interesting piece there because we talk about resilience and often the corporate answer is we need to focus in on the individual, train them up and give them mindfulness training and create an environment where they can replenish their own individual stock. But as a big idea, individuals will always be on that spectrum from fragile to more robust or strong but we reach a point where the stress levels are bigger than we are and we either break down or break through and more often than not people break down. It's a whole other thing to be part of a team where adaptively as the stress levels rise, the group leans in and gets better at dealing with the stress as a group. People can drop out and drop in from time to time. So as a big idea, resilience is not actually a function of individuals, it's actually a capability of teams. You know, we can, we can do so much by investing in mindfulness and it has a very positive impact on the brain. We can invest so much in you know, making sure we have work-life balance and we're eating good food and nourishing and you know, all these things. Um, but what creates the second order shift in resilience and the ability to withstand a changing environment is actually the strength of an adaptive tribe or a team rather than the individual. Right, so let's go through that. So the resilience quite often is expressed at a team level rather than an individual level. Mm. Is that what you're saying? Because, because all of us at any time are having a, a good day or a bad day. You know, you can have someone who's a, a high performer, quote unquote, but that doesn't mean that they'll turn up every day and provide X level of performance and the next day X level plus one and the next day X level plus two. In reality, you come in and you'll be a morning person or an evening person. And if the demand or the deliverable comes in in the morning, you will do great. If it comes in in three o'clock in the afternoon, you're not going to do so well. But if you're part of a team that knows each other's strengths, knows how to work together and pool your energy and resource, you can actually find ways to deal with even very unexpected challenges because you can you know, exercise this human function, which is to work together to solve the problem. Right, so let's go into some of the science of this. So you've got, so that's the holy grail, that you, you basically, if you can build this capability within a team, every company, every situation is dealing with change <laughs> or um, things not going well, it's, it's almost you can bake it into any company's business plan that things won't go as, as planned. So having this capability, this resilience, seems to be vital for everyone. But where people might struggle is they might recognise that one time their team seemed able to withstand things or bounced back from disasters, and another time one didn't. I, I chatted to someone recently, and she said she'd gone from one company, which was a, a brewing company, to a retail chain, and she said 
What was remarkable to her was that the retail chain had a merger. The whole company suffered, the results went through the floor, it was less than the sum of the parts, things went badly. And I said, oh, and what do you think the difference was? And she said, we just had this resilience in the other place he used to work at, mm. the brewery, that this other place didn't. You might diagnose that we've got this resilience or haven't. What drives that? What drives it? So this is where it's interesting to come back to social neuroscience and look at what we know about how the brain functions best, particularly when we're interacting. So as a term, there are lots of different kinds of neuroscience. I like to say social neuroscience is looking at what happens inside your brain when you're in a room with somebody else or with a lot of people or when you expected to be in the room with someone and they didn't show up. It's all of those things around how does your social environment shape the way your brain works. And what we've discovered is when you look across all the different studies, there are consistent underlying social needs that the brain has that foster either a sense of resilience and adaptability as an individual and in the relationship or which foster stress, fight-flight responses and ultimately a sense of that demotivation or, or burnout. And the one that people have heard most about in the last couple of years is, you know, of course, psychological safety, mm. which has been championed by some of the research that's been done at Google. Mm. Um, and it's quite an interesting story when you look at how that came about because they were looking for a quality of an individual when they started the project. The thesis that they started with was we have high-performing teams, let's measure the individuals and try and understand what it is about the individuals in those teams that's creating high performance. But when they went through their analysis, what they found, it wasn't actually about the individuals, it was about a quality that was being created in the team itself, which was psychological safety. From a neuroscience perspective, there have been studies over the last five or 10 years that make it clear why that's so important. Matt Lieberman's the, mm. the father of social cognitive neuroscience. I literally read his book on holiday. It's a fantastic book. And, you know, we, we affectionately say he's the grandfather of social cognitive neuroscience. He got that name at the age of, you know, 40. Mm. And he'd founded this, uh, the, the field much earlier um, as a philosophy student who was curious about what happens in the brain and he happened to have access to an fMRI machine. But he did this first foundational study where he put... Uh, uh, a student into an fMRI machine, scanning their brain, got them to play a very simple game where you're passing a ball from one person to the next. There's you and two other people and Cyber it's just passing ball, around. Cyberball, exactly. Yeah. Um, now, very simple. If you imagine, you know, 20 years ago, the state of graphics, this wasn't 3D virtual reality. This was just little characters on a screen. And so they start playing and it's a group of three. But then something changes. Um, all of a sudden, these two other players start passing the ball backwards and forwards between the two of them and the person in the fMRI machine is being excluded. Now, they've never met these other two people on the screen. Um, they don't even know their names. But even that small cue to social exclusion triggers a really interesting response in the brain. There's a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, and this is almost like mission control. If you can imagine in a, in a big supermarket or shopping mall, you know, there's a security guard sitting somewhere up in an office and he's looking at all the computer screens and seeing, of all of the things that are going on, is there anything that's an issue? So when you get physically hurt... If you stub your toe or get a slap on the back that you're not expecting, this part of the brain fires up to say, there's an issue. We've got a problem and we need to respond. Come back to the, the student in the scanner. Two people they've never met start to exclude the student. Their brain goes crazy. The ACC fires up in exactly the same way as if they're being physically hurt. And so at a very core level, the, the brain's actually wired to detect and respond to the threat of social exclusion as if we're being physically challenged or hurt. 
So come back to your, you know, your conversation around, you know, the two companies that merge. Um, by chance or by design, by good leadership, by happy accident, you've got a company where that psychological safety has been established. It doesn't take much to disrupt mm. that psychological safety. It doesn't need to be active exclusion or threat. It's the perceived exclusion or threat that starts to trigger the brain's fight-flight response. So in many ways, this psychological safety is a foundational human need. It's one of about six that we reliably see popping up. Um, and in high-performance teams, they, they satisfy them well. And when things start to go wrong, it's because one or more of these needs is, is being challenged. The first thing that strikes me there, that psychological safety, the way you describe it, isn't the equilibrium state. There's no, there's no natural expectation that any organisation should naturally revert to norm and psychological safety is the norm. Firstly, that's not something you can take for granted. No, and it's it's something that individuals more often than not satisfy for themselves as best they can. We're actually not very good at creating psychological safety. But there's a really interesting sort of shorthand to remember here, which is we think people want to be liked. What they need is to be needed. This part of the brain, and we say psychological safety, another word for it is relatedness. Do I belong within the tribe? What your brain's terrified of is that you're going to be kicked to the curb, either because you've done something wrong or because you're just not needed anymore. The support of the tribe's going to disappear. What we often do in times of uncertainty is we say, look, it's all really tough, but don't you worry and let's go have a beer or something that's being liked what the brain's looking for is what can i rely on what can i trust um, what is my role in the future state and if you don't know that when will i find that certainty and what are the signs and symbols that i'm still a valued member of the the team that strikes me that there's lessons there for managers any manager would sit there thinking okay all i need to demonstrate to the people in my team is the role i either want them to perform Mm. or actually why I need them in the team. Mm. So it's not necessarily that I need to synthesise this false bonhomie that I love these people, but more demonstrate to them what they're accomplishing and, and what their role is. Absolutely. And you will often, I've heard you say in the past, Peter, you know, people will quite happily play a very unpopular role in a team, even when it's damaging to their career, because the brain's desire to be acknowledged by the tribe and to still have a role in the tribe is so strong. This is interesting, because back to your original experience where you were saying that you felt incapable of providing the leadership that maybe the teams were looking for, this feels like an obvious pitfall that a lot of people might fall into, that they might neglect this aspect of demonstrating need and sort of reciprocal value-add and focus on, I'm going to try and make everyone like each other in this team, or I'm, I'm going to try and make everyone like me, or feel liked. We, and we all go for a drink, mm. and everybody's really friendly. And it feels, therefore, and maybe I'm connecting something, but if a culture's built on just positivity, and this is a flaw that I've made, you know, when I started out with this, it was like, how can everyone be happy at work? But if you've got a culture that's just based on trying to create positivity, it might not be as resilient. It might feel a bit insincere or a bit like I'm not sure what my value is. That's right. That's exactly right. We're hardwired to want to know, am I actually making a difference to this team? Am I adding value? And am I valued for that aspect. And this, what, what really triggered my thinking around this is when you look at some great entrepreneurs, some of them are some of the most aggressive, unlikable, dreadful people. 
some of their staff would have literally given their kidneys to them because they felt so needed okay. by that person. This really contradicted because I came from the school of I wanted us to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. I wanted us to be happy as a group. I wanted us to be positive focused. But people at the end of the day sort of felt like they were wasting their time a bit. You know, if you look at the at the exact opposite, you end up with somebody who, in many ways, you'd consider them a hard-ass. You know, they're a very strong commercial person, but they'll sit down and they'll say, I need you and I need you to do this for the sake of this group. So I think in the Gallup Workforce Survey, one of the questions that comes up is, does my work matter to my boss? Or there's something related to that. And what you're saying effectively seems to be the underpinning of that. If your boss notices that the work you do seems to be of value to that boss, we feel like we're doing a good job. Yes, and to the other members of the team. Mm. So we create, particularly entrepreneurs, create hub and spoke models. That actually doesn't create team. That creates hub and spoke. It's a form of dependency. Instead, you need to have team members valuing each other's input and being able to work with each other. So at a very practical level, yes, it's very helpful when a leader sits down and says, this is what I need you to do. But it turns into psychological safety when everybody else in the team hears the leader say, the reason you're in the room is to do this. And the reason I've asked you to join us in this meeting is so that you can bring this perspective or view. Doug over there, I love the way you challenge us, even though it's difficult for us sometimes, because your question keeps us honest in these ways. Now, everybody else has permission to argue back. And this is the next part of this psychological safety is once you've got shared and agreed roles, shared and agreed ways of working. But it's very powerful once everybody in the team understands why everybody else is in the room, because it gives you a right to play in a position from which to to contribute as part of the team. It strikes me that it's so active that there might be something in what you're saying in the neuroscience, which suggests about optimal team sizes. Because if you're going to have that genuine, strong bond relationship, a team that's 40, 50, 100, I, I don't know, I mean, I don't know what, do, do, you, do you have any sense from the science about what the optimal unit of human beings is? There's been interesting research, not so much from neuroscience, but from anthropology, trying to look at how our brains shape the size of the group we live in. And by now, most people have heard this number of around 120, 150, um, Robin Dunbar's number. What he did was look at the size of the the frontal lobe in the brain relative to the rest of it. And this is the part of the brain that we think of as being the uniquely human bit. It developed last in our history. It's associated with some of our higher order thinking. And interestingly, the size of that frontal lobe links back to the size of the groups we live in. If we look at human beings versus chimps, you know, other primates, you can see this strong relationship between the size of our frontal lobe and the group sizes that we live in. And when you plot the line and see where humans sit, the number comes out at about 150. And interestingly, there are lots of examples where people tend to be able to manage a group of about 150, but not so much once it gets beyond. But when it comes to the working environment and team sizes, that becomes a more complicated Mm. question, surely because there are so many variables. You know, we're talking about a decentralised team versus a team that's working face-to-face? Are we looking at a team that's very diverse in terms of its backgrounds and the ways that people like to work versus a team that's quite homogenous? Mm. Um, so I wish there was a magic number. Yeah, okay. um, but in terms of the underlying neuroscience, we don't see it. Having said that, that's one line of data amongst many in terms of, of I mean, team By and large, if you've got a team, part of the reason it's a difficult answer is because it depends what the team has to do. Mm. If it's a call centre and the team has to support each other, that's quite different from problem-solving or an agile team or a project where you might have 40 or 50 people. But by and large, about 8 to 12 people will work together 
and form a unit of performance. And then that group will act as a node and connect with another group and another group. And then the groups work. If you put eight of those groups together, that becomes a mega team. The first one we were talking about relatedness, this need to belong and feel safe. Um, that's the first and the foundation. The second need then is what we'd call expression. The human brain actually needs to be able to express and feel respected and safe in, in expressing. Um, the next is then this idea of leading the pack or this, this need for status within the group. Um, a need for interpersonal connection, to feel connected and understood at a deeper level by others. You know, the need to see progress and feel like you have the information and data that you need. And then this final need is this need for hope for the future or optimism. They're the, they're the headlines, but there's, there's lots of interesting stuff in so each of those. So you style this as relish, don't you? Which is yeah. relate, relatedness is the e, expression. Leading the pack. Leading. Interpersonal connection, seeing the facts and hope for the future. We, uh, we call it relish because in our context... To relish something is a verb, which mm. means to mm. enjoy and, and celebrate life. When we go to the US, they helpfully pointed out that uh, it also is a sauce that goes on there, right. their hot dogs. But to relish the way teams work together is just a handy way of, of remembering it. Some of the work that you guys have worked on is, is fascinating. And one of the things that you've worked on is trying to seek resolution between different groups who might not have a lot of trust. Mm. So I don't know if you can give the specifics of what they are, but could you just give us a pointer of you've got, it might be those two companies who've merged, you've got two groups who don't necessarily start from the foundation of respect and trust. Mm. How do you start using the principles of neuroscience to start bridging that gap? Well, it's by looking at how we satisfy those needs as a group. Interestingly, you know, you mentioned two sides that may have some conflict. In a very different life, I, I work closely with two groups, Indian and Pakistani medical students who actually hadn't met before we worked with them. But the task was, how do we bring them together in the spirit of non-confrontational dialogue? In other words, tier two diplomacy. How do we not leave it to governments to try and resolve the conflict, but actually start to build relationships between groups who start off with a very high degree of hostility? Mm. Because what they've done is define their identity according to their difference. So you meet someone on the street, they say, I'm from Pakistan, we are at war with India. I'm from India, we are at war with Pakistan. Therefore, here are all the assumptions and stereotypes that go with, mm. with that relationship and the interaction at first is quite hostile. But when you actually sit down and talk to someone, their primary identity isn't as I'm Indian or Pakistani. In, in their case, it was, well, I'm actually a doctor. And what I believe in is the sanctity of human life. And I believe that my role and my purpose on the planet is to do everything I can to support people, to avoid harm, to do good and to heal. So when we were designing this process, the very first thing was to make them aware of that role. Okay. Because as a doctor, the brain organises all its behaviour and interaction around that role. So in the same way we said relatedness is this first need. Mm. If I define you as you are from this group, at war with this group and in conflict, that will drive all of the behaviour and all the discussion. If I define it as what we have in common is we are both doctors, we are both nurses, we are both humans. This isn't a new idea, by the way. When you look at some of the Nobel Prizes that have been awarded for peace over the years, um, you look at the Northern Ireland conflict, what changed the dynamic there all those years ago was when mothers from the two sides of the conflict said, hang on, this is crazy. We keep fighting as if we're Northern Irish versus from but the UK. Mums. I'm a mum first and I'm sick of my kids going away and me not knowing if they'll come home. And it's that recasting of the role so that there's a tribe to which we all belong and an intent or a shared objective to which we can all subscribe that, that shifts the dynamic in a very powerful way. It's the interesting thing about that because if relatedness feels like it's something that probably each of us could be sliced 
500 different ways. Mm. It could be the city we're from, it could be the sport team that we support, it could be our gender, it could be our sexuality. Humans are so wired to need to tribe that all we need to do, we can take 50 people off the street, put them in a room, give them a different coloured T-shirt, and within 20 minutes to half an hour, they will start changing their views of their tribe versus their other tribe. So, uh, so how would a company then start thinking about this? So a company might start thinking, I know that success and building people feeling part of this endeavour here is by cultivating a sense of relatedness. What might they do first? So let's have a look at, say, change as an example. You've got two departments that you're trying to bring together. The first is not to assume it's going to go well because what you have is existing tribes, existing dynamics, and on paper it looks like putting them together will go smoothly. But in practice, what we're asking people to do is to form a different tribe Mm. and in the process disrupt a whole lot of automatic assumptions around how to behave in the tribe, what's accepted and not, who do I go to, who's trusted and who's not. So step one is to assume that in the process of the change we're disrupting this relatedness and therefore you're going to see signs of anxiety, you're going to see uncertainty until we proactively create a new sense of of psychological safety. Just to make it a little bit challenging, it's unconscious. We're not aware Mm. of what tribes we belong to until it's disrupted. It's an implicit part of the brain. Yeah, it's a really interesting quirk. Yeah, and without going too much off topic, this balance between the things that we're consciously aware of versus the things that our brain tries to automate, this relatedness, this feeling safe and secure within your tribe, the way we do that is by learning how the tribe works and then making it unconscious to, to fit in. So if you imagine your first day at a new office, you've got questions around, what do they wear? If I wear this shirt, will I be in place or out of place? By the time you've been there for two or three months, you don't think about that. You've unconsciously internalised all of those rules of the tribe, and so it's very easy to fit in. The tribes that you belong to at work, you may vaguely be aware of, but not as a conscious I come in and that's my tribe. It shows up when it starts to be unsettled. Yeah, so what holds it in place is the narrative. Whatever tribe you have the most stories about and the most episodic memory about, every time you tell that story, your brain rewards you with dopamine. So you feel better about it. And this is what a joke is. You know, often the person telling the joke gets a whole lot more enjoyment than the person listening to the joke because they're retelling the same story. And if your partner in life tells the same story every time you go out to dinner, after a while you think, oh no, they're not going to tell this again, are they? But they do in the same way that on Facebook, every time you post, you get dopamine. Every time you tell a story, you get dopamine. Every time a comedian tells the joke, they get dopamine. So the point of all that is, whatever the tribe is that has the most stories and the most emotionally intense stories, that's where the identity follows. And identity is the self-organising principle around everything in the brain, exactly as Mish was saying earlier. So you as a father, you as a brother, you as a son, you as a worker, you as a soccer player. You know, these are all different yous. And the one that wins is the one that has the most stories and the richest stories. So that leads into things like why the why process is so powerful in organisations. You know, Simon Sinek's work around the why, because what it's doing is giving a language and an emotional voice to the power of the tribe and why the tribe exists. As one example of many, when you're, say, bringing two departments or divisions together, they've all got powerful emotional stories about how that department worked and why it was as successful or not as it was. They don't need to be positive about all of the organisation's history, but there's a set of stories that link them to that previous structure as you're bringing two very separate 
departments or teams together, part of the task is how do we, point one, explain the benefit and the purpose of that combined organisation, but then give people the chance to build an emotional connection to the new tribe and build stories around that. It strikes me as really interesting because, you know, the, the entry point here is, is thinking about the science of all these things. And it seems to be part of the science is actually back to that bifurcation that we used to have at university where you were at arts or science, which seems to be a lot of the science is understanding that humans are artistic. You know, they love a story. They love an emotional activation. And the science is telling us do not neglect these things mm. and, you know, make sure humans have got a lot more soft skills running through them than sometimes we, we, maybe, mm. we, we maybe set out to remember. Well, and, and it's a nice lead-in in a way to the second of the, the needs. You know, we said briefly expression is the second need. Again, by chance, it's Matt Lieberman's lab uh, with Naomi Eisenberger doing interesting research around what happens when you're feeling a very human emotional response to a situation, but you're not able to express it. And of course, this comes up in change all the time. This comes up in teams that are high performance, but under stress, you know, you're feeling incredibly frustrated, but the professional thing to do is to bite your tongue and stay quiet. Now, what happens in the brain at that point? And the answer is you become diagnosably stupid. Literally what happens is the frontal lobe, which is supposed to be doing all the thinking, gets retasked to control your body and try not to give away all the facial expressions. It's almost like you've been in meetings with me. (laughs) (laughs) Or in too many boardrooms. (laughs) But it's fascinating because we all have this view that the way high-performance teams work is that there's very low conflict, everyone gets on incredibly well, and therefore there's this natural flowing kind of space. In practice, many of the highest performing teams have above average levels of conflict, but there's no lasting damage or negative impact from that. What drives emotional expression is the limbic system in the brain, and its job is as an alarm system. Its job is to detect a perceived potential threat and fire up and say, hang on, there's an issue. I'm feeling anxious because there might be a fire. I'm feeling angry because I think I'm about to be (laughs) injured or harmed. So do we know why that self-control leads to us becoming stupid? Do do we know why that self-control leads to us repressing the thought patterns in our brain? It's literally because the more advanced parts of the brain are trying to control you your behaviour not to express. I it's like if, that's energy that, that's energy destructive as well. It, like, it probably leaves you exhausted. It absolutely does. It's a little bit like if you imagine trying to do a meeting when the fire alarm goes on, you know, they're running a fire drill. Inside your head when you're experiencing an intense emotion, what's literally happened is your limbic system, your amygdala or, you know, the emotional parts of your brain have detected a potential issue or threat and are busy trying to sound the alarm to say, you need to change your behaviour, do something to change the situation until that issue is resolved. But then the frontal lobe says, no, I need to be professional, sit still, stay there. And the alarm system's trapped on repeat until you can address it in some way. Intense emotion that's masked ends up compromising our our cognitive function, our thinking, our performance. No one likes to express it, but when you do, you reclaim all of that cognitive ability that you've lost. And that's what psychological safety is largely about. Right. The ability to say exactly how I'm feeling, even if I look like a bit of an idiot, and to know Mm. that tomorrow that won't be held against me because together we're a team. When, when kids bicker with each other, but then return very quickly to an equilibrium where they're, you know, asking each other to come and play tomorrow, it bears the same characteristics of psychological safety. It does. It, it depends whether you stay in that present state, which is fine because then it, it disappears, or whether you turn that into a story, this is not such a good thing, because then the negative emotion gets 
put into a story which every time you tell it amplifies. And then you get a mix of the negative emotion and dopamine. So the dopamine is the good stuff. From telling the story, you get in the dopamine. So let's say, let's say you do something and I think it's terribly unfair. Yeah. And I get a little bit angry about it. Now we've got a pattern because if I tell Mish the story, I may try and tell the story in such a way that Mish expresses how I'm feeling. So I tell the story, Mish says, oh, that's terrible. He shouldn't do that. He shouldn't have gone to that. You need to go and see your mother in hospital, whatever the story is. This is now becoming a rehearsed story. So when you look at a culture of an organisation, there are all these rehearsed stories that bear no semblance okay. at all okay. to the reality as it is right now. It's about people. When you say, I was on a, a train from Wales and I had a, a wonderful woman sitting next to me from Mars who was telling me all these terrible things that had happened. And I said, when did this happen? And it was in the 1200s. And it's like, obviously, they passed these stories down, right, for many years, family to family. In Australia, we looked at the rail system and they had stories that went back 100 years, but they were told in the present because they get dopamine, which is... The best, that's what all addiction is about, dopamine. So a good story is... And especially if they're in service of relatedness, the first point. That's right. Defining identity and safety in that tribe. If you're the the leader and and you and I are moaning about you as the leader, well, there it is. We've now formed our own little subgroup. We get rewarded. And so this is when you can then start to see amongst those six needs that there is not a hierarchy, but there's a building story because the brain has a need to belong and feel safe. That's that relatedness. It also has a need to express... But the way we express is driven by what allows us to stay safe and secure within the tribe. Some of the the leadership frameworks that have been very powerful over the last five or ten years, authentic leadership is an example. At least part of that was about someone challenging the status quo of, no, you you don't express and say, hey, you're actually feeling at work, and saying, no, 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 we actually need to create a culture and I'm going to create a situation in my team where I, as the leader, role model the safety to express. And that has a transformational impact on our team because we're role modelling something that every brain actually needs, which is the ability to express. So the right question in a way isn't do you feel safe? The right question is where do you feel safe? Mm. So, it, so everybody will feel safe somewhere, but if it isn't at that primary work level, that's the, the, your loyalty goes to where you feel safe, where you belong. When you talk about something like burnout, you know, we've got an epidemic of people feeling overwhelmed and burnt out at work. Often they have a lot of energy in other domains of their life. And when you have a look at the circumstances in which that comes out, whether it's a football team or whether that's something they do with their family or at home, these underlying needs of relatedness, I've got a clear role with a shared set of values. I'm free to express and say how I'm actually feeling. I feel proud of some things that we do together in a sense that I'm I'm actually punching above my weight. You know, I feel a deep sense of connection to the people around me, a sense of love. There's some oxytocin. And I can see that we're making progress and advancing. These are being satisfied outside of work. So no surprise, that's where people's energy goes. Meanwhile, at work, there's a, re- a merger or a restructure coming on and we don't quite know what's happening. We've heard that the we might be sold, but no one will tell us what's happening. Obviously, they don't value our perspective. I may not have a job. I feel incredibly stressed at times, but whenever I talk about it, my manager shuts me down and I'm certainly not going to show weakness to the other people around me. I'm a bit concerned because they keep telling us how we're actually not that competitive in the market and there's really nothing for me to be proud of in terms of the work that I'm achieving. And when I think about genuinely connecting with the people around me, I get this sense that actually they don't really care about me as a person. It, you know, it's no surprise mm. then that there's not a lot of enthusiasm or energy for work there. What we what we do at that point, what the brain does is says, you have to go in to earn the money, but try and contain your involvement and engagement so that you can get the out the other side and then go back to the environment where these needs are being mm. met. So this is where the 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 artificial distinction between work and life 
you know, sort of starts to emerge. Mm. The brain is wired to respond to feedback. We do have a core need to feel like we understand the environment in which we're, we're working. Um, you know, some people focus very much in this area quite actively. You know, they have a, a learning mindset and they're fascinated in learning and studying and diving into the detail. But all of us, whether we see ourselves as bright or not bright, as being data people or not data people, we have a need to feel like we understand the environment around us and we have the information we need. So in teams, this is an area where often what people will say is, we don't really know if we're making progress or not. Either they've got a thousand indicators and it's impossible to know which ones we should be looking at, or we we don't have any data to really say whether we're making an impact or not. And what that means is the brain doesn't have the information it needs to start to optimise its own behaviour. Mm. Um, the neuroscience is interesting here. There's a, a technology called EEG, electroencephalography, and it's recording electrical activity in the brain. So as your brain's just sitting at rest, it's all the different neurons are firing. Some of them are small neurons. And so when they fire, they fire fast. And so you get lots of little sparks of electrical activity. Others are much bigger neurons or much further apart. And so they have a much slower wave. And so when we put this EEG cap on your head, we can record your brain activity and see if it's running fast or slow would be a simple way of saying it. You can learn a lot about the brain there. What's really interesting is if instead of me sitting behind a screen and interpreting it, if I just record your brain activity and then hook that up to a reward system, so show you a TV screen with an interesting movie or video, your brain will start to adapt its, its very own functioning to get more of what it wants. So it's a TV show that you like and I can see that your brain's running very fast. If we wanted to try and slow it down the way meditation works, all we do is turn the TV screen down or the volume down when your brain's running fast. And as, if your brain starts to slow down, we turn the volume up a little bit so you can hear it. It's a very simple feedback loop. And just that, without any words, without any explanation of what's happening, your brain within five or 10 minutes will start to adapt how it's working. Now, you can't feel how fast your brain is. There's no active sensation. But your brain is so wired for feedback that it will immediately start to respond to that. So the brain is wired to optimise your performance based on external data, but we're not very good at, at providing it for right. people consciously. So instead what we look for is political uh, cues. And so the feedback becomes political. Who's in, who's out, facial expressions, does he like me today, am I in the group today, who's in, who's out, rather than the performance of the team. Mm. So the number one role of a leader is to stop saying individual performance and start saying how do we measure the team's performance because the team will self-regulate. Some people will work longer, some people will work shorter, some people are, are really bright, some people aren't so fast. But you don't need to have a, a whole group of really bright people. You need a group that has a sense of itself and it will rise and outperform. This is a sense of pride, it's a social construct. And so you feel proudest of your organisation when people in the organisation have gone above and beyond to add value. So that's really interesting because in the process, when you're asking the why, the individual, not the organisation, goes back and says, when did I feel most proud of this organisation? And it's a recalled memory. It's not necessarily about what they did, it's what the organisation did. Then you build it from that and say, so what are the themes that all these stories have in common? And then you're able to build the purpose statement because... Everybody can look at the purpose statement and go, yes, and I have a lived example of exactly that. Right. Back to my discussion with Misha and Peter from NeuroPower after this. 
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now finishing up my discussion with Misha Byrne and Peter Burrow from Neuropower. Reminds me, it's, it's the importance of those stories, those things that we oft repeat, but possibly a long way from experiencing that, you know, similar to your woman on the train from Wales, a story that activates that that recognition can actually be an important part of that pride. Is, is pride the same as purpose, do you think? I know Adam Grant has talked about people's pride in their company seems to be a big determinant of where they feel purpose at work. Is pride the same, do you think? Well, from a neuroscience perspective, the first two social cognitive needs create a sense of satisfaction and meaning. But love, so oxytocin and the the love circuit, which is the interpersonal connection and purpose, when you put those together, you get a sense of pride. So pride is where the group is adding value, but they're doing it in a way that demonstrates genuine love. Now, love doesn't all mean kumbaya. It can mean that you're helping somebody in need or you're showing a sense of respect or, you know, there are many, many different facets of love. But that's what creates it. It's that. That's interesting. So what? So, so when there's pride there, oxytocin is triggered and, and the, the thing that Matt Lieberman was telling me on holiday in his book was that when oxytocin is activated, it has, these, it has two elements to it. It not only makes us feel a love and affection for the people that we like and trust and for strangers, but weirdly it makes us repelled from the enemy, the, the, the bad guys. So it, it can sort of, I guess, help rally a company in a sort of competitive fight. It, and it's very interesting because um, as oxytocin has been written up in the popular press, it's become this nice, light, touchy-feely, it's what will get you a date, it's what's you know going to see you through a dark winter night. But exactly as you've said, what it drives is closer connection mm. to people you're connected to and more interest in them and an interest in supporting and protecting them. The place where oxytocin is most strongly apparent in the body is in a mother giving birth and in the moments after as they bond with their child and then protect that child mm. from the world until it can look after itself. And so this is really interesting as a, an observation for corporate leaders because we think of oxytocin, we think of love and interpersonal connection and think, why would I possibly want that in the team? What it drives is leaning in 
from team members to each other and a fierce protectiveness of the work of the team and of the people in it. So it's actually as strong as it is nice. That was a revelation to me to discover that. You know, it's like how these things are far more nuanced than sometimes we, uh, we, we think. Pride is a very good thing, but if, at what point does pride become, you know, it could become a sin if you've got mm. too much that complete independence, that sense, don't, don't touch our family, don't, don't help us, we, we have no needs. Each one of these, interesting in terms of these social cognitive needs, we run strong in some and weak in others. If you're very strong in leading the pack, it means that you'll be very goal-oriented. You almost compete with the other members of the team. If you're very strong in relatedness, you're very team-focused, but sometimes you'll spend more time just focusing on the team rather than getting the work done. So the, the idea here is that some of these are, but some of us are conscious in some, and some of them we haven't really looked at because they're unconscious. We don't even realise their needs. Within the team, each of the needs are satisfied by people who are strong in each of those different elements. So to come right back to the beginning then, when you're looking at how do we create resilience, it's about not the leader providing these needs, but the leader creating a space where the team can regularly monitor these needs and then adapt to satisfy them in a better way. So a simple conversation around psychological safety, here's a big idea, guys, how well do you think we do this and what's one or two things that we could start to play with that might increase the psychological safety? And once you introduce the concept, people will be able to talk about it and start to self-manage. And this is this idea of you know non-hierarchical teams. What they do is regularly monitor these needs, either consciously or unconsciously, and then start to adapt so that they're, they're creating an environment where people feel safe, like they can express, like they can focus on goals. I think it's fascinating as well that then to demonstrate to a team that when we've reached a state of psychological safety, it may well be expressed that people wander past our meeting rooms thinking there's quite a ding-dong going on in there. People are sort of passionately arguing with each other. And because we might think we, we're achieving psychological safety when there's this serene harmony where mm. everyone's sitting around. And it's it might be one model of psychological safety, but it's not mm. the model. And it's really important because that the second one you described is, is not actually commercial. And there's a reality to our work. We do still need to get the work done. So part of the conversation is not what's the the state of the team where we all feel most comfortable, it's what's the kind of teamwork that we need to get the work done. Your ability to withstand these sort of bumps in the road, these issues, actually is an important quality of, of achieving success. Nothing's going to go right. And, and actually that psychological safety is another expression of the way to get over bumps in the road. At the point just before breakthrough, the tension is palpable. And if you and I are having a disagreement and I have no love for you whatsoever and very little respect, you're in irritation. So all I'm doing is managing myself not to be irritated or not to express that too much. But if I have a deep love and respect for you and we fundamentally disagree, it's a bit like your, you know, your primary partner in life, the tensions go up and up and up and you go, but you couldn't possibly believe that. How could... With everything you know, with everything you've experienced, how could you be so wrong? And they say, and how could you be so wrong? And you keep the intensity to the point where suddenly you go, wow. And you get this flash of gamma in the brain and you've got a second-order breakthrough. And teams that can hold the tension do that. And they revolutionise stuff. It's a bit uncomfortable. And if you don't genuinely love the people around the, the table, it's, it's very difficult to hold the tension. 
But that's what great teams do. They hold the tension and they create this brand new stuff. So if the role of the team is to keep everything stable, not a lot of creative shift, not a lot of pivoting, it's about you know, doing the same stuff every day, then you don't need to have that intensity. But if part of your remit is that you need to be thinking around corners, beating the market, thinking of new ways of operating, you need to have a competitive strategy, then the more that team can hold the tension, the more brilliant it will be. Wow, that's such an incredible way of expressing it. Because I think, you know, any of us remember situations where, because there was so much trust in a, in a, a group of people, that they were able to hold the tension. And normally something remarkable took place. Wow, that's such an incredible way of expressing it. Okay. And if people wanted to hear more from you guys or, or hear more about the organisation or what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, send me an email. No. <laughs> um, look, there are, there are a couple of books that are around that are worth reading um, and some articles on the, the website. What would you suggest, Pete? Yeah, go to the website and, and I think sending you an email is a great idea. Yeah, I love – I nerd out about this stuff all the time. I'm, I'm catching myself because depending on how many thousand emails I get, I may <laughs> not be able to respond quickly. Matt Lieberman's work is fantastic and yeah. having a look at social is great. Um, that's I, his book, social, that's his book. which is wonderful. I love your book, Peter, as you know, so Neuropower, which, which you wrote, which, you know, was a revolution for me because rather than saying there's one answer, you said let's have a look at all of the different frameworks. It's a 1,000 pages long, so it's not light reading, but, but that's where a lot of the neuroscience is that we've come across over the years. Um, I'm based in Germany, so if people are ever coming by, they can say hello to me. Um, but otherwise, having a look at social neuroscience as the space, this is this is the term you want to Google. And it really is. That Matt Lieberman book was, you know, I sat down to read it one day, a holiday, and I've pretty much finished it that day. Um, good. Well, I'll give links to all of those things in the notes so mm. you can, if people tap their podcast app, they should be able to see that. Yeah. I'm so thrilled. What a stimulating, brilliant discussion. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Misha and Peter. I'm really thrilled for, for them coming. Sorry it took me a while to put that one out. I'm so grateful for everyone who's been sharing the podcast in the last few weeks and just sort of passing it on to people who might be interested. It's thrilling to see that level of, of involvement. It's really nice. I really appreciate it. I've been Bruce Daisley. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company. United Healthcare insurance plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare insurance plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.